I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. On today's show, Kevin Jared Hussain. On his new novel, Hungry Ghosts. Kevin Jared Hussain is a Caribbean novelist. He was named overall winner of the Commonwealth Short Story Prize in 2018 and was the Caribbean regional winner in 2015. He has published two books, The Repenters and The Beast of Kokoyu. The latter received a Code Burt Award for Caribbean Young Adult Literature, and both were long-listed for the International Dublin Literary Award. His writings have appeared in numerous anthologies and outlets, and he lives in Trinidad and Tobago. And today we're going to talk about Kevin's new novel, which is Hungry Ghosts. Kevin, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So what I, I always ask first is, can you tell us how you would describe the novel? Sure. So the novel is set in 1940s Trinidad. So you might see it billed as historical fiction. But there's also some, you know, because at the beginning of the novel, there's a a character that goes missing, a wealthy landowner named Dalton Chango. So immediately there's a bit of, you know, a bit of detective noir in there. There's also little bits of it that may seem like, you know, like a supernatural thriller, even though, you know, those elements aren't really involved, but there is a type of horror to the type of writing as there. So there's a there's a bit of everything <laughs> in the novel. But mainly what it is is a story about divisions and class of class and, and wealth and the repercussions that you know those um divisions could have on a society and in this case a community and a country. Now, in my proof copy of the book, there's a little letter from yourself at the beginning, which is the sort of thing that they make you do nowadays. Um, (laughs) And you mention the oral tradition of storytelling in Trinidad in history. Um, So tell us something about how that has influenced this novel, if at all. Sure. So the very dark period in which this this novel is set, there's really... Not much you can go off of, let's say, for example, in a in a history book. So I was interviewing some elders from my childhood village, which is a, a rural village in central Trinidad, and this included my grandfather. And I was interviewing them for actually a nonfiction 
article. And while they were speaking, I, I realized that there was a lot that I didn't know. So, you know, I, I, I hungered for more. And at the time, a novel wasn't really something that I had in mind, but everything that they spoke about, you know, I thought would, would make such good fiction in a sense. And I knew it would interest, because when I was first writing this novel, it really was in the interest of the Caribbean people and the Trinidadian people. I never really thought it would be widely released like this because it was something that I didn't really know about. There's a lot of stories that were relegated to the, the memories of people and not really told in text. So I wanted to record something that was that was of their ambition and day-to-day struggles. But, you know, I wanted to make it emotive and entertaining as well. So you mentioned it's set in 1940. There is a line early on that says Trinidad had been killed and now it was to be resurrected. Tell us something about why 1940? What's significant about that time in the country's history? The 1940s is a bit of a liminal space in in Trinidadian history, which means that it is this this strange period of an almost awkward period of transition because the British colonial machinery was just winding down in the country. But at the same time, there would have been Americans. The American Navy would have come into the country because this would have been around the time of World War II. And there was a rumor of some Nazi boats in the Caribbean Sea. So they drove out, when the Americans came, they drove out uh, a fishing village on the northwest of Trinidad and displaced those people. And when they set up base, they also brought with them a, a kind of feeling of the American dream because the locals, which this is a story of the locals, sandwiched between these two superpowers, the locals were so accustomed to, I guess, what you would call British stuffiness, you know, of the of the overseers that um, would have ruled over the, um, you know, that, that would have been like the, the, the colonial presence there. But the soldiers, the Navy brought with them a sort of, uh, a sort of laissez-faire, carefree attitude. And that must have, you know, had, had an effect on the locals there, this, this type of freedom. And as what I would say is the old Trinidad, which is th- that would have been ruled by these bigger powers. Now that those powers, when you, you know, they were they were seeding, we had a new Trinidad now where the locals had to sort of take control of the country as the British were moving out. But can everyone be trusted to take care of each other? Because in the novel itself, if you know, if you were to see anyone as a villain, the villains are not any Americans or any British, the villains are the locals who, um, who you know, they hunger for power and to rule over others. So this is, you know, it's a book also about how a lot of us have become our own enemies in the community. People who are long-term listeners may remember a few years back me talking to um, Ingrid Passard and we talked about how there's a lot of people in Trinidad and Tobago that are originally from the Indian subcontinent, and that's also something that that is a theme of this book, um, how they were um, discriminated against. Tell us something about, again, about why they were there. So 
when the you know when 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 the British set up in Trinidad, the the main product at the time was was sugar. Uh, at first, they would have brought um, the enslaved from Africa to work you know to work on those sugarcane estates. And when slavery was abolished, well, now you need a new labor force, so indentured laborers from um from India, from mostly the southern parts of India, would have come on boats to Trinidad and Tobago and well other places as well. But in Trinidad and Tobago you were you were given a, a kind of deal where you could come and you could work for five years and you could go back or you could you could stay and you would be given a small parcel of land. And typically that small parcel of land would be somewhere quite uninhabitable. You might be in a swamp land or something like that. So those who would have came from India to Trinidad, they would have stayed in these buildings called barracks. And that would have been attached to an estate. But if they would have been given land that was, you know, let's say that you couldn't really live there, then you were stuck in this kind of limbo, in this in this structure that wasn't maintained, especially as uh, the colonial, as I said, the, the, the whole colonial estate thing was dying, then you're kind of stuck in this dilapidated building. With, with a culture, a Hindu culture that nobody really understood or respected. So sometimes you weren't even allowed to be part of civilization. You might as well have been a Martian if you was to be Hindu because the customs were seen as so eccentric to the other locals. Tell us something about the the setting of the novel, The Village, which is called Bell Village. Something about its environs. We'll talk about, you just mentioned the barracks and we'll come to the the barracks, which are a part of the um, the Changori State, in a moment. But tell us something about the, the the environs of the village. Sure. So the the village Bell Village is mainly, let's say, a Christian village. And a, a little backstory about this would be that typically in schools back then, the 1940s and and before, would have been run by British and Canadian missionaries. And those schools would have had a lot of resources, a lot of literature. And if you wanted to send your child to that school, if you wanted to attend that school, you had to become Christian. So you had to kind of shed your Hindu beliefs and customs and, you know, take up, take up the cross or the crucifix, so to speak. And that was a sacrifice that, you know, many, many Hindu families made for the betterment of their you know, their families and, and, and descendants. And a lot of the the village now has, I imagine that they see themselves as they have made the right decision. And those that have chosen to, to remain Hindu, well, you know, they've kind of set themselves up to, to be poor and to, to suffer throughout life. So there's already a kind of social gap that has formed between um, the Christian residents of Bell Village and the, the Hindu residents of near the fringes of the estate. So introduce us to um, the characters of the, the Changos, Dalton and Marley, who are the, they own this estate that has workers who we'll talk about in a moment, but tell us something about who they are, first of all. These two are very different characters. They are. And as the story progresses, you begin to see some similarities between Hans and, and Mali. Now, to sum them up, 
uh, if we start with Mali Chango. So she is the young wife of Dalton Chango, who is the, the landowner, you know, the owner of the estate. She's quite young and her origins are at first unknown. So no one knows where she's come from. So everyone has sort of made up uh, a story or version of her. Now, something that's interesting about her is that she has adopted a type of appearance, let's say, of a, a British aristocratic woman who's well-versed in literature and who dresses you know, you know, in, these, in, these, in these kind of refined clothing and speaks in the Queen's English or the King's English, as you'd call now, as opposed to the Creole English that you know, other Trinidadians would have spoken. So she lives at the top of the hill, and the bottom of the hill, the barrack, is Hans Rad Sarup and his family. So he lives with his wife, Shweta, and his son, Krishna. So they come from a life of, let's say, backbreaking labor. And they, you know, in, in the barrack, there's many, many families. There's five families living there. And the main argument, the main conflict with Hans is that his wife wants to move out of the barrack because it's, it's become very, very dangerous to their son and they have a daughter that's, you know, that died due to disease as a result of living in the barrack. But he doesn't necessarily want to leave and we, we're not sure why until the opportunity presents itself. So he is a character that we don't really inhabit the mind of because we are constantly guessing what he exactly wants until you know he performs those actions and we see the direction that he's going. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Kevin Jared Hussain, and we're talking about his new novel, Hungry Ghosts. And Kevin, let's spend some time talking about Dalton, Dalton Changor, who we said is the um is the owner of the estate. But right at the beginning of the novel, we find out that he's disappeared. It's not giving anything away to say that he's he's disappeared. And so most of what we find out about him are recollections or through other people. Tell us something what you can about who he is. Sure. So, um, well, as you've noted, Dalton is a bit of a mystery at first, not only to the reader, but also his wife. And so at the beginning, we we learn of many oddities of Dalton Chang'o, and they, they begin to quickly unfold where he has set up his house to be, as I described, a hodgepodge of different cultures, of things that are beautiful but do not fit together. So it's described as ungainly and disgusting, just like him. So with Dalton, now we get the idea that he is a patchwork of many different things, just like Mali is. It is as if you don't know when... The this person ends and the idea of another person begins as if they've, they've rebuilt themselves. As we learn, as we go through the story, we learn that he's maybe involved in some criminal activities. And that's perhaps how he acquired his wealth. That is not just um, something that is inherited, that he may be deeply steeped in um, some sort of trade. And Mali has an idea of this, but she doesn't know for sure. So when he does disappear, and ransom notes start to appear and very strange happenings um, occur around the estate. She becomes very, very worried for her own safety. He's also seemingly struggling with his mental health. Tell us something about that. Yes. So he's completely isolated himself in a mansion, aside from Mali. And there's a, there's a painting that we learn of, of a, of a Chinese goddess, Ji Wang Mu, Queen Mother of the West, that he keeps in a sanctum, and he believes that his mother is trapped in a painting and seems to take direction from that painting. So that painting becomes a sort of ominous force for Mali, we learn, because suddenly, you know, his mother, who he believes is trapped in a painting, no longer approves of Mali. So that means that he could tussle out at, at any time and she would lose this privilege and lifestyle that she came into when marrying him. We also learn that he's seeking an heir from the village. So he's invited a lot of village children into his house, even though he's isolated himself, to observe each one of them to see which one he could quote-unquote adopt. That goes quickly awry. So he's a figure that is almost of legend where... They know he's powerful. They know he has a lot of money. And in a sense, they know he's mad, but he's a distant kind of of insanity. One that you think comes with the territory and wealth and things like that. So it is almost even a bit acceptable to them. Or it is something that, you know, you would come to expect of a man like that. You've introduced Hans and Sweater, the Saroops already, and mentioned Krishna. Tell us something about what, life in the barracks would have been like for these families? 
So what's interesting is that I, you know, I had to do a bit of, of research for this. I had to interview some people who might have been in the barracks, not necessarily lived there, but visited it or have, you know, been, been around it because there would be no photographs of the inside. There would be of the external structure, but no one would have, you know, taken pictures of the inside of it. And if, if you have to imagine it, think of a, like a long building and there would be different rooms for each family. And the beds might have been made out of uh, flower bags or rice bags, and they would have made their clothes out of those bags as well. There may have been coconut fiber mattresses, and it would be a home to also cockroaches and all types of vermin. And because the structure wasn't sound and maintained over time, you would get, you know, if rain falls, you would get some flooding and water leaking, in, which is, you know, unsanitary conditions. So it is easy to exoticize poverty or to just see it as plain to generalize suffering. But I wanted in the barrack, I wanted the people in there to have, to show their ambition and aspirations as well. And there was a story that um, actually my father-in-law gave to me when he visited one, is that he saw that one of the boys who lived in one, that he used to collect movie posters and he would, you know, he would post them on the walls, kind of like, you know, when, when we were teenagers and we would post our favorite artists on the, on the wall, our favorite singers. And I, I thought it was fascinating because it, it was a different way to depict people like that. You, you might think of them as just, you know, going through suffering and things like that. But a lot of the time, they are just trying to go through life and find the things that they want to enjoy, whether it is a magazine magazines or whether it is devotion to their fate, things like that. So I wanted to depict that. One thing you depict beautifully in the book is the the landscape and the flora and fauna of Trinidad. Tell us something about writing about that. So the Caribbean and Trinidad is a, is quite a it has a lot of biodiversity to it. And it as I like to say the biodiversity of the Caribbean is almost synonymous with it. You, you, you go to, to any area, naturally preserved area, and you would see, let's say we were to look on the ground and look at one patch of grass, you would see six to eight different species in there. And it would be quite heterogeneous. You, you, you would see a lot of, um, not just, let's say, flora and fauna, but the interactions between them. And when you study it for, you know, when you look at it for long enough, you think about survival tactics that these species would, would have to, you know, would have to learn or adapt to. And in a sense, it, it made me think about the characters in Hungry Ghosts, where they are part of the landscape, you know, this natural landscape as well, and the type of survival tactics that they would have to adopt, just like um, the animals and creatures all around them. But they also form part of this natural tapestry. Can you tell us something about the title Hungry Ghosts? What a hungry ghost is, what that represents? Sure. So a hungry ghost is a mythological figure that you would find in ancient Hinduism. And it is actually not just limited to Hinduism. It has, you know, it has branched off into into Buddhism, and there are also versions that you might find in Japanese folklore as well. So if you, if you have to picture what a hungry ghost looks like, it is a, so when, when one passes away, one may, one may seep into another realm and turn into something that has 
a very, very large belly, right? And a ravenous appetite, but it will also have a very slim neck and a very small mouth. So there's no way to actually satisfy that ravenous appetite. And thus that is the, you know, that is the curse of the, the hungry ghosts. Or you know, in, in Hinduism, they are called Pritas. And finally, before I ask you to, to read us a bit of the book, if you would, what does this novel say about modern Trinidad and Tobago in terms of the, the discrimination that we see in the book and the social mobility or lack of social mobility? It shows, so the, the beginning of the book is, it has a dedication um, to the ancestors and everything they grew. And this is actually in reference to, let's say, two things. The first thing is this, where uh, when those, let's say, my ancestors came from India, they would have brought with them something called a, a jahaji bundle on the boats. And this would have been filled with uh, seeds, plants for herbs and things like that. Uh, when they would have come, they would have actually planted those seeds um, you know, for food, and some might have seeped out into the natural landscape. So plants that you would find in, in Southern Asia, you know, suddenly you find it growing in Trinidad and Tobago. So it has become part of the landscape. But the other way for it is that the ancestors, as I said, they, they were viewed as kind of alien back then. And in, in the modern sense now, East Indians have, I mean, we've had a, a, a prime minister. We have a, a president. We've had numerous CEOs. We have music integrated into the culture and food integrated into the culture. So it's come a long way from being discriminated against. Not saying that discrimination no longer exists, it does. But it has, you know, they have, they have been weaved into the, the Trinidadian, the whole Trinidadian zeitgeist, so, so to speak. But they are also still... It, the novel now speaks to divisions of class because there's still there's still a rift between um you know various areas of wealth. So can I get you to read us a bit to finish us off? So I think um since since we discussed um the part with Dalton, you know, and the painting, um I could read from that part. The morning after the note. Marley went downstairs to prepare breakfast. Dalton wasn't there. Usually, he would be at the kitchen table with his bifocals, skimming the newspaper. He brewed his own coffee and drank until his nose was shut, preferred imported Arabica to the locally grown Robusta. Marley maintained the house, did the washing, the folding, the sweeping, the dusting, chopping, the cooking, the baking, did it for her own sake, at least. There were never any guests, soirees, coffee clutches, birthday parties. The living room, kitchen, bedrooms, the wainscoted staircase only held memories of them both. Because of this, the house always felt like some concealed shrine. The wordless stillness of the house now made the gloom of the air more apparent. Its silence holy and eerie. For most of the day, she was a ghost, roaming a haunted manor. If Dalton was in the kitchen, perhaps he was in the outhouse, a single room shed that he had fashioned into some sort of strange sanctum, an nymphium that held nothing but a giant 
oil painting of a Chinese goddess. Dalton made it clear. Marley was never to enter unless he was there too. As if she were too profane for it, the goddess, like the dogs, had been there before her. The goddess, draped in lavender and topped with a phoenix crown, was surrounded by four jade maidens and giant messenger bluebirds. Marley very slowly turned the knob, tipping the door open. Dust wafted like snowfall within the dim tomb-like room. Dalton wasn't there. The goddess and her maidens glared at her sternly, as if she had interrupted some invocation. It was only recently that Dalton had shared the goddess's name with Mali, Ji Wang Mu, Queen Mother of the West. One day, Dalton admitted that his mother's soul had been absorbed by the painting and spoke to him through the canvas. Mali also learned that the apparition had once been impressed with her and even suggested his marriage to her, but no more. His mother now saw Mali as a liar and a charlatan. That woman simply isn't devoted, Dalton. Dalton confessed that there was little he could do to change his mother's mind. All of this he had divulged, unprovoked. Mali married Dalton knowing he was unsound of mind, but his condition had significantly worsened over the past five years. Paranoia, dementia, monomania. She wasn't sure how to describe it. He had rooms with towers of newspapers and magazines and boxes and all sorts of ephemera. Flew into rages at the slightest mention of tidying those rooms. The house itself was a hodgepodge of things foreign and colonial and antebellum and pretty and gold and red and scintillating. It was ungainly and disgusting, just like him. So I've been talking to Kevin Jared Hussain. We've been talking about his novel, Hungry Ghosts, which is out in the UK from Bloomsbury. Kevin, thank you so much for taking the time to tell me about it. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. This episode of Little Atoms was produced, presented and edited by me, Neil Denny. Little Atoms is hosted by Acast and published by 89up. The show is broadcast on Mondays and Saturdays on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.